0: You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host today is Sarah McHugh, Lighthouse volunteer and sports business specialist. Hi Sarah.
1: Hi Jeremy.
0: Today is November 14th, 2021, and this is episode 147 of Lighthearted. In a few minutes, we'll listen to a conversation with two guests about Standard Rock Lighthouse in Michigan, the most isolated lighthouse in the United States. How's your fall going so far, Sarah?
1: My fall's going great so far. I've been lucky enough to go on a lot of super great lighthouse adventures. In September, I went up to New Hampshire for the lighthouse cruise that left out of Portsmouth Harbor and went up through New Hampshire, Portsmouth Harbor, and into Maine. And then last month, I went down to New Jersey for the Lighthouse Challenge of New Jersey. So I'd say that's a pretty successful fall so far.
0: We're actually recording this in late October. Uh, Next week, my wife Charlotte and I are going on our first major trip since before the pandemic. We'll be going to the Savannah, Georgia area for five days. We plan to visit some great lighthouses, including Tybee Island and St. Simons Island. And I'll be featuring them on upcoming episodes of the podcast. So let's tell everyone about Stannard Rock Lighthouse and today's guests.
1: Standard Rock Lighthouse was nicknamed by its keepers the loneliest place in the world. Coast Guard keepers called it Stranded Rock. Located about 24 miles from the nearest shore, it's the most isolated lighthouse in the United States.
0: Standard Rock Reef off Michigan's Keweenaw Peninsula, some 44 miles north of Marquette, Michigan, was discovered by Captain Charles C. Stannard in 1835. Extending for about a quarter of a mile, The reef was considered the most serious danger to navigation on Lake Superior. It's located just south of the important shipping lane between Sault Ste. Marie and Duluth, Minnesota.
1: A small stone crib with an iron day beacon was constructed on the reef in 1868. The structure weathered several years of storms and ice and it was determined that a lighthouse could be successfully built on the rock. Officials were also encouraged by the completion of remote Spectacle Reef Lighthouse in 1878.
0: The construction crew from Spectacle Reef shifted to Stannard Rock. The project's base camp, known as Stannardsville, was established on shore 51 miles to the south. After a massive stone crib was built in 11 feet of water, a sandstone tower was constructed on top of it. In all, the project took 240,000 tons of rock and iron and took five years to complete. With a rotating second-order Fresnel lens, the lighthouse began service on the 4th of July in 1882.
1: Life for keepers at Standard Rock was always grueling and sometimes terrifying. Huge waves frequently assault the lighthouse in storms, sometimes sending spray over the top of the 110-foot tower. On windy days, the keepers would use rope to tether themselves so they wouldn't be blown from the base of the tower. Another hazard was winter ice. In the winter of 1913, the entire lighthouse was encased in so much ice that a rescue team had to work for a week to free the keepers.
0: The light was automated in 1962. In 2015, ownership was transferred to the Superior Watershed Partnership, an award-winning Great Lakes nonprofit organization. The lighthouse has been converted into a climate research station.
1: Carl Lindquist is the founder and executive director of the Superior Watershed Partnership. Frederick Stonehouse is the author of more than 30 books, including the best-selling The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. He's also been a consultant for both the US National Park Service and Parks Canada.
0: I had a chance to speak with Carl Lindquist and Fred Stonehouse recently. Let's listen to our conversation now. I'm speaking today with Carl Lindquist, the Executive Director of the Superior Watershed Partnership and also with Great Lakes historian and author Fred Stonehouse. Thank you so much for being with me today, Carl and Fred. I appreciate it.
2: Great to be here.
0: Yeah, thank you for having us. Our main topic today is the Superior Watershed Partnership's stewardship of Standard Rock Lighthouse. Standard Rock is considered the most isolated lighthouse in the United States. So, we'll talk about that uh, stewardship. Uh, starting out here, uh, Carl, could you first explain what the Superior Watershed Partnership uh, is and does?
2: Yeah, well, uh, in a nutshell, the uh, Superior Watershed Partnership is a Great Lakes nonprofit. Over the years, we've grown to uh, service the entire Upper Peninsula. And we do more than Great Lakes-related projects. We do a a wide range of community projects and um, other environmental projects.
0: And what led the organization to apply for ownership of Standard Rock Lighthouse?
2: Well, we were learning about the federal program where you know the the government is getting rid of a lot of lighthouses, and came to our attention that if a local unit of government or a nonprofit doesn't Apply for ownership, then it goes to the open market. And a lot of times, what we were hearing in in the northern Great Lakes is you know, some wealthy individuals were buying them, sometimes for personal retreats, sometimes for Airbnbs. And we just didn't want to see that happen. I I don't think it was very likely, but we felt uh, it would be better to have a Great Lakes organization own it.
0: We'll get into some more detail. But uh, for listeners who might not know, the, uh, the process you're referring to, the federal process for finding new stewards for these lighthouses was uh, it's under the National Historic Lighthouse Preservation Act of 2000. And each year, the, the uh, federal government has been finding new stewards for these lighthouses. Uh, and it's uh, happened for, for quite a few lighthouses over the past 20 years. As you were talking, I was thinking, boy, that would be, uh, it would be the most isolated uh, Airbnb in the country if Standard <laughs> Rock Lighthouse was turned into a b That would be, but there'd be a lot of people who'd want to do it, probably. So, Fred, uh, let's talk a bit about the history of Standard Rock Lighthouse. The uh, construction of such a, a massive structure so far out there on Lake Superior, so far from shore, is a pretty amazing thing.
3: Uh, what we often forget about with uh, Standard Rock light is that it really has a relationship with Spectacle Reef light, which is in northern Lake Huron, because Spectacle Reef was built before Standard and was really built as almost a practice for doing the big light. So the same construction <laughs> crew did Spectacle, then they moved on up to Lake Superior, and again, it's Standard Rock at that time. The blocks for the lighthouse were taken from Kelly's Island in western end of uh, Lake Erie. And it's hard to understand the massive size of some of those, but uh, 12 ton with the small ones and 20 ton with the big ones. They all were certainly wow. cut limestone. So you've got a Great Lakes lighthouse being built of Great Lakes material. All of that material they're going to use for the lighthouse was taken to a little village near Skene, Michigan, way up on Lake Superior at the end of Kievanaw Bay that they dubbed Standersville, and they used that as the base construction headquarters for the lighthouse proper, which was 51 miles distant
0: Mm -hmm. from where
3: that support facility was. When all those blocks arrived, they put them together on shore. They literally assembled the lighthouse on the beach to make sure that all of them fit together properly, so that when they took them to the big light offshore, they would be able to be sure that they would indeed dovetail correctly and be a a little bit easier to construct in the rough waters of Lake Superior. It took them five years to build it, um, starting in 1878, and about 40 percent of that time was spent repairing damages from storms during the winter, particularly the ice damage that occurred. So when you realize that fact, you just have a deeper understanding, I think, of the power of Lake Superior and how, how difficult it can be. Uh, we look at the pictures of the lighthouse today and we see the big concrete crib around the base of it, about 22 foot high. But for the few of us that were able to get into that crib and explore it from the inside out, you realize that the tunnels that are in the crib actually <clears throat> don't serve a couple of different purposes. One of them is, of course, the storage of materials, uh, particularly as used as a cold room for food. Because it allowed you to keep stuff cool during the heat of a Lake Superior summer, but also as an expansion joint to handle the contraction of and expansion of that mass of concrete during the winter and the summer months. Uh, the lighthouse uh, costs about three hundred thousand dollars to build, making it the most expensive lighthouse ever built on the Great Lakes. And there's about a quarter million tons of steel, iron, concrete, and rock that were put into that structure. Seven levels on the light, seven and a half feet thick at the base of it, and then a 22 inches at the, uh, at the lantern room. And when you consider trying to put all of that together using the technology of 1878, uh, it was a massive construction feat, and certainly one today that we can just kind of roll our eyes back on as to how they would have been able to do it.
0: Well, oh, it's an incredible accomplishment. And uh, about how long did the whole project take from the time uh, they started? It, was about, until, it
3: took about five years, and uh, by pure circumstance, they uh, they were able to light the light on the Fourth of July, eighteen
0: eighty-two. It was lighted for the first time. Yeah. Do you know if that was something they did? Delib- well, it seems like it must have been done deliberately to kind of uh, make it a, a celebration, in a sense, to light it on the 4th of July.
3: I suspect they, they hold, held it back a few days to, uh, to, to get the proper impetus to it. But we understand, too, the old lighthouse service was very much a business-like organization. And with the shipping safety at, at hand, I think they would not have certainly delayed it too long to mm-hmm. make sure they, uh, they could do it properly. So let's talk a bit
0: about the human history. There are lots of stories about life at that lighthouse being very stressful, which it had to be incredibly stressful. It had to be the right kind of person to be out there. Are there any stories, any of the human stories there that really stand out for you?
3: Oh, I think in in the history of that lighthouse, there are any number of terrific stories uh, that we we can talk to. But one of them that sticks in my mind is really took place in the early 1940s. When the support vessel that was running out of Marquette out to the lighthouse got caught in a spot of very rough weather, uh, when they reached the light, uh, heavy gale force winds, uh, seas running at eight and 10 feet high, too high for them to be able to attach the davits, the hooks at the end of the davits, to the, the boat the vessel they were using to bring it up to the crib. So the crewmen that were in the boat literally had to take a line and drift off the light, so to speak, and ride out the storm in the open lake, tethered to the base of the lighthouse, and to do that for two days. So when you think of these fellows without any peat on the boat, cold weather, fall of the year, no food, and literally hanging onto this little 36 foot boat for two days before the sea is calm enough to be able to get the boat back up to the crib deck level. It was a different breed of men. It was also a little different because some of the keepers would go two or three days without talking. There was nothing to say. There was simply nothing you had to say to anybody else. So you simply operated almost as an automaton. Mm -hmm.
0: It amazes me when I was reading about the history. It really amazed me that there were a couple of keepers there who served for uh, 20 years. Uh, Lewis Wilkes was one of them. He was principal keeper from 1936 to 56. And I read that he was once there for 99 consecutive days. I just can't uh, imagine what that must have been like. I would think that being there for more than a few days would drive most people crazy. I think it would drive me crazy.
3: We we think in terms today of putting men and women into space for long voyages to other planets, that certainly would take months, if not years to complete. And uh, Hopefully we have some pretty good drugs to put them under for that voyage, but much like with the old light keepers, it was a lonely business. Sure was. The lighthouse was authorized for four keepers, four men to be there assigned to the rock. One of them is a principal keeper and then three assistants. And the first year they were out there, they went through six assistant keepers. Uh, Normally you'd only have three, but literally six of them burned their way through the lighthouse. They just couldn't take the isolated duty. Three of them, ended up quitting the lighthouse service completely after their experience at Standards Rock. Now, when you consider that that light was only operational during the season of navigation from roughly, let's say, the middle to end of May until December 1st, that's a short period of time. That's not a full year, as you would find at some of the Eastern and Western Lights. Shortest keeper, one week. (laughs) Lasted one week at the lighthouse before he quit. And the only reason he lasted that long was because he got off the service boat to bring him out, climbed up to the deck level, looked around, realized what was going to happen, what he was going getting himself in for, turned around to yell for the boat to come get him, that he was coming down the steps and the boat had left already. Huh. And they yelled back and said, we'll be back in a week. Uh-huh. As soon as they came back, he quit. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's a story told in the 1950s that when the Coast Guard was keeping the light, one of their men was desperate to get off that lighthouse, desperate from the loneliness, desperate from uh, perhaps being having a a relationship problem with the rest of the crew. But he got on the radio to the support station in Marquette and in effect said, get me off this light, get me off right now, I I can't take it. The fellows at the other end of the radio calmed him down a little bit and they let that conversation go. Next day he calls back again, again they will come, again they won't come third day. The fourth day he says, if you don't come and get me, I'm gonna start to swim. They came out and got him. And mm-hmm. by the time they had reached shore, he was in a straitjacket and heading for the mental ward in the local hospital. Maybe that's true, maybe that's not, but it certainly fits the expectation from yeah. serving on Standards Rock.
0: That's well, not not hard to believe. There was a disaster at Standard Rock in June 1961. Can you tell us about that?
3: Well, it was um, it was really one of those very unfortunate accidents that actually was, I think, self-inflicted by how the Coast Guard operated the light. At 9.30 that night, a 1,000-gallon tank of gasoline exploded, and that gasoline was used to fuel gasoline-powered generators to provide electricity to the light. Now, why they were using gasoline instead of diesel makes no sense but regardless the gasoline went up that in turn set off a number of propane tanks they exploded that in turn started a fire in the coal bunker that in turn started a fire in the lighthouse proper Uh, a fire that was so fierce that it literally melted some of the sandstone off the east side of the lighthouse you can still see that today there were three men there at the time two of them were off duty the explosion was strong enough to blow the men right off their bunks onto the floor, cans of the rooms, items are on shelves, of course knocked hither and yon, furniture overturned. Uh, these two poor fellows uh, could try to get out of the light because now the lighthouse has become a great big chimney with all the smoke coming up through the different levels and heading out through the lantern room with the shattered glass windows up there. Well, they can't do it because there's a wall of flame in front of the only door out. So they will, in turn, break out a small window towards the lower level, jump out of that window to the deck. They are only wearing their skivvies and their, their shirts because that's all they were sleeping in. They have no access to warm clothing. They have no access to food. They finally find a small piece of, uh, of canvas wrapped up in that and huddle on the lee side of where the fire is. They should have had help out there fairly quickly because they were required to do a radio check, both with Manitou Island and with station Marquette every four hours. That check obviously wasn't done then. It wasn't done in the next four hours, wasn't done in the next four hours. And finally, two days later, the Coast Guard cutter woodrush arrived with a normal supply run and was shocked as they were pulling up to the lighthouse to obviously see the fire and the smoke coming out of the top of the lantern room and they rescued the, uh, the two survivors. The third man was never found. It was believed that he may have entered uh, the uh, generator room and that's when the explosion occurred and he simply was either vaporized completely or whatever remained was blown out in the lake and that was the end of it. But uh, certainly the Coast Guard did not do the best by not having the best equipment available at the station, especially an isolated station. Well, the Coast Guard then went up and uh, immediately changed the light over to an automated light for the remainder of the season, got the men off the uh, deck, no longer made a demand facility. And the following year, went back out and recovered the Fresnel lens and then replaced that with, a, I think, a 205 millimeter jelly jar uh, that served for a number of years. Mm-hmm. And the story of the lens, of course, is, a, is another tale onto its own.
0: Would you like to share that, the story? Thank of the you lens?
3: for the prompt. <laughs> No problem. Uh, well, the Lens was a second-order classical Fresnel. Mm-hmm. Of course, like all the big Fresnels made in, made in Paris, that was only one of five second orders on the Great Lakes. There were two clamshell seconds, one at White Shoal in the Northern Lake Michigan, and the other being on the Rock of Ages Light at the Isle Royal in the western end of Lake Superior. There were three classical Fresnels, uh, one of them, the Spectacle Reef in northern Lake Huron. One of them at Gross Isle, a little bit north of Chicago on Lake Michigan. And then, of course, the one at Standards, which was like so configured with 12 bullseyes and had a rotation of about once every three minutes. So the Coast Guard will go out. They will recover the lens, replace it with the winter lens or the, the new uh, Lexan lens. They will take it back to Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, and they will box it up and send it off to the Great Lighthouse Depot in Washington, which they duly do. And it then disappears into the system. It literally drops into this great warehouse of unaccountability. The Maritime Museum in Marquette started in the 1980s had been contacting the Coast Guard curator, trying to say, look, where's the lens? We'd like to be able to lease it or borrow it so we can display it in the museum, et cetera. Gail's answer always was, we have no idea where it is. We can't find it. Can't help you. And eventually in 1997, the curator gives me a call and says, we think we found the lens. Can you come and verify it? Well, as you know, the old Fresnels did not have serial numbers. So the way you could only verify it was literally by the structure of the lens itself and any other detail you may know of it. Mm -hmm. So I immediately flew out to Washington uh, with the logbooks we had from the rock. And by noting areas of damage that occurred on the lens, was able to match that up with damage on the lens the Coast Guard had found. And that in turn verified that it indeed was the, the, the proper lens for, for Stannis Rock. But it was only then that looking at the boxes, I realized what had happened. The Coast Guard had labeled the boxes Sault Ste. Marie lens, which was where they had boxed it up. Now, the suit course never had a lighthouse, never had a lens, so it never fell into the right slot in anybody's inventory. It simply disappeared. And mm-hmm. only by accident, at the time, it was hidden away, I think, in the basement of Coast Guard Academy that they eventually found it. Did they discover it? And we immediately got a truck out, picked the lens up, uh, did the proper legal work with it, and it's, it's now on display. So that's the story of a lens and the difficulty well, of trying to track it down to the right lighthouse. Uh, we were later able to recover also the pedestal to the lens. Uh, the Coast Guard was uh, gracious enough to send a cutter up and have the crew r- remove it for the museum, so it's properly displayed now on the original pedestal.
0: And maybe I missed it, but I don't think you said the the museum you're talking about. Where is it? I'm it sorry. It?
3: This is the Marquette Maritime Museum in Marquette, Michigan.
0: You've been involved with that museum for a long time, right?
3: I was one of the original founding members of it a, a long time ago, longer than. Okay.
0: Yeah. Carl, thank you for, for standing by here. I'm going to get to you in a second. But um, Fred, are there any other stories about life at Standard Rock Lighthouse uh, that we haven't already covered, things that stand out?
3: Well, I think one that would stand out very nicely is the involvement they had in Prohibition. Uh, there always was tremendous fishing out of the the reef at Standard Rock. Uh, commercial guys were out there all the time. It was one of their hot spots. And during Prohibition, the lightkeepers got thirsty. So according to tradition, they made a little deal with the fishermen that while they were on light, working as light keepers, of course, they they often had time on their hands. So they did a little commercial fishing on the side. And then when the commercial boats came out, they simply bartered the fish they had caught for a few bottles of um, medicinal old crow that allowed them to get through those long and dark nights.
0: (laughs) Makes perfect sense. Yeah. You find any bottles, uh, empty bottles hidden away there anywhere
3: in the lighthouse? Uh, we did not, but there's not been a lot of diving activity out there either when we might be able to find some. I don't think they would leave them laying about the station. Thank you
0: for the the history, Fred. I'm sure, obviously, there, it's a tremendously uh, interesting uh, place with a lot of history. I'm sure there's a lot more we could talk about. But Carl, I'm just wondering, uh, before we talk specifically about the your organization's uh, stewardship of the lighthouse, Wondering about you personally, before you got involved with that lighthouse, were, were lighthouses in general on your radar? Were there something that interested you?
2: Well, definitely, I've always had, an, or I've long had an interest in lighthouses. Uh, I worked a season on Isle Royale uh, 30 years ago and visited a couple of lighthouses out there and worked a, a little on one, um, but yeah, I just had a personal interest, but uh I never expected our organization would own one.
0: Yeah. When did you first visit Standard Rock? And what was your first impression of the place?
2: Um, I I believe it was 2014 with the GSA representative out of Chicago, I believe, and the Coast Guard. And it was, what do I want to say, a very uh, impressive, awe-inspiring structure. I mean, I just... It was nice. I always learned a lot when Fred, uh, I talked with Fred, like just now that the size of those stones, I would, I got back, was telling people, it's like, you know, the Greeks or the Romans built it, but it's it such massive stonework. Uh, I didn't know they were 20 ton stones. That's, that's impressive. So yeah, I was just uh, awestruck. And uh, I uh, had a funny story that day. It was calm. And uh, I believe it was June and uh, we went in that, uh, Fred, that, that newer boat that the Coast Guard has. That I call it a jet boat. You know the, what I mean? Yep, the 45. Y- yeah. Oh. So we took that out, and it was flat calm. And we were out there, you know, just over an hour. It was amazing, you know. And then uh, we s- scrambled up the caisson. And, uh, and I'm up there with a couple of young coasties. And I actually brought my son out. He was in high school at the time. And uh, that boat takes off to the east at a high speed. And uh, I'm like, well, how are we getting back? And they go, oh, on the uh, buoy tender. And they point to the west. And on the horizon, there's this old, I think it was the Alder. Is that the right name? I think it was, yeah. Yeah, built in the 50s or something. And it's chugging out black smoke. It <laughs> took us about five and a half hours to get home, <laughs> but well, it was a fun day.
0: Yeah, so that that first visit, that inspection visit, you went out with the GSA, what kind of condition was the property in at that point?
2: It was in pretty you know, rough shape, but I, I would say it was mostly, uh, I don't want to say cosmetic, but, you know, because like we were saying, the stones, the, the main part of the structure is standing the test of time pretty well but all the inside all the walls were peeling the paint was peeling there was plaster damage uh, there's a lot of dirt and debris so yeah it was a kind of a a mix of incredible construction methods but also needing a lot of maintenance and since then we uh, got a state grant and worked with the historic preservation uh, office and developed a you know a comprehensive restoration plan, you know that would cost uh, over a million dollars to implement. And also since then, our crews uh, we have well we have a year round staff, but in the summer we hire a lot of seasonals. And we call it our Great Lakes Climate Corps now. And each summer the Coast Guard uh, takes us out at least once, uh, sometimes twice, and they continue to do. Uh, maintenance mainly and clean up and you know they were out actually just two weeks ago uh doing some scraping removing of lead paint they had to wear hazmat suits and preparing some of those rooms for painting and and restoration
0: so it sounds like de-leading the place getting rid of the lead paint repainting it is a priority but are there other aspects other particular uh, problems that need to be addressed with the structure
2: yeah, they have prioritized, uh, you know, last, maybe you saw the story, uh, last winter, we were working with the Coast Guard we were, last fall, I should say, to get out there because um, there was a window out, and they were trying to arrange a trip for us to go, and winter settled in, and the, they decided to go out by helicopter and lower the uh, Coast Guard uh, member down uh, and did a, a repair of that window while it was encased. in, You know, the lower level was pretty encased in ice, mm. but that uh, got a lot of publicity, that mission.
0: Obviously, you're doing gradual restoration there, But uh, and you mentioned there, there is a plan in place. Is there a specific fundraising campaign that's going on for that? What, what, what's happening with that?
3: You know,
2: you can't do anything without funding. You can't do much without funding. So a lot of what we've been doing to date is just been using our general fund and covering the costs ourselves. And, you know, we do a, a lot of grant writing out of this office, but we're, we were finding that there's really not much out there for this. You probably know this pretty well, right? Around the Great Lakes, around the country, or even in Michigan. And Michigan does have a, a, a program now for maritime-related restoration. But, you know, I, I forget what the total kitty is for each year, but they give out multiple
3: grants. The awards are pretty small and it's not. Go ahead, Fred. No, no, I was just going to say that it, it's really made even worse by the fact that the lighthouse is so far from shore. Nobody sees it. Right. Uh, if you're fortunate enough to have the lighthouse sitting on the beach, sitting in the harbor, everybody sees it and building a constituency of support is a lot easier than trying to talk about well it's 40 miles out there and it's really pretty cool it's tough absolutely tough yeah. stuff
0: with a place like that it's always a case of uh instead of bringing people to the lighthouse you're doing more of bringing the lighthouse to the to, to the people to educate people about it but since we're on the subject let me ask you and either or both of you can answer this but are, are there any plans in the works will there ever be public tours of that lighthouse do
2: you think well, we're certainly open to that, you know, maybe make it an annual event, you know, one trip or something a, a summer once it's been restored more, you know, it's currently not something we would want to bring people out to. And there's the liability issue. You have to climb up that crazy ladder, but there are ways to work around that. So I, I wouldn't rule it out is what I'm saying. I wanted to add, add a little bit more to uh, what you were sa- asking about funding, though. Um, so we got a small grant from the uh, Americana Foundation this year, mainly to develop a video, but also kind of a toolkit, trying to gather all the information there is out there for Great, for great Lakes Lighthouses anyway, ideas on fundraising, on, on the, the few grants that are out there, and uh, just other resources available for uh, communities or organizations that do have lights And Fred, uh, I just had an idea. I want to throw it by you because you know Fred runs the Maritime Museum, and pretty do you manage the the Marquette Lighthouse?
3: Yes and no. Uh, I'm a volunteer. I serve as board chair for the Maritime Museum. I don't. We have a paid director who really does the running of it.
2: But I was thinking what you said about you know people don't see Standard Rock, and if if we were to cover the cost of a you know well done. Park Service quality uh, sign or a small display, an outdoor display that maybe went near the Marquette Lighthouse. Like, here's the beautiful red Marquette Lighthouse. Did you know that 40 miles north of here is, you know, then have a photo of Standard Rock and a little history?
3: I think that would be a brilliant idea. I do think that that would be a receptive uh, idea from the city. We
2: can thank Jeremy for uh mm-hmm. it, putting this together. And I will, I'll talk to you more about
0: that in, in the future. I'm happy if I could help facilitate that just to, maybe just a little bit. Uh, so let's uh, talk about a really important part of all this. I want to talk about the, the climate research station at the lighthouse. Carl, at this point, uh, what sort of equipment is there and how will it be used?
2: Right now, it is a uh, bi-national effort uh, between the U.S. and Canada. Um, so in the U.S., it's, it's NOAA, and in uh, Canada, it's Environment Canada. It's made a wide variety of weather research, climate research, uh, everything from evaporation to wind speed to wave height, on and on. We work a lot with the NOAA office out of Ann Arbor, Michigan, what uh, a lot of discussion about expanding climate research out there because it's a valuable research site because it's so isolated that it's not influenced by cities or you know or other weather factors on land. Um, it's really valuable for a lot of different types of uh, climate research.
0: And is that climate station is it complete at this point, or are there plans to expand it in the future?
2: It is active right now. They've been using it for for many years, uh, even a, a little bit prior to uh, even prior to when we took ownership. But they've been uh, expanding and changing what they're monitoring. We are adding a a live video cam uh, soon. And uh, we are also going to have some, you know, simple monitoring equipment that will be linked to our website. The high level monitoring, again, is done by NOAA and Environment Canada.
0: Obviously, this equipment is pretty much automated, but is anybody living out at the lighthouse at all, part-time or, or, uh, or not at all?
2: Not at all, but uh, if Fred ever
3: wants to stay overnight, he's always welcome. <laughs> uh, I'm not worried about staying overnight. I'm worried about staying overnight, over day and overnight, over day and over another. <laughs> you may, you may spend the rest of your life out there. Yeah, I think I'd be in a
2: straitjacket if, if that happened. But no, it's in no condition for that at this point. But we do, you know, have plans to uh, make it a, a research station where one of the levels would be, you know, have bunk beds and uh and a little kitchen and a composting toilet and so on and so forth. But that's a lot of fundraising down the road, you know, that if a researchers wanted to stay overnight, they could.
0: Mm -hmm. You
2: know, I I love
0: uh, repurposing of lighthouses uh, these days. Uh, Any uh, sort of repurposing, I think, is a a good thing because, uh, you know, anything that brings attention to the lighthouse and uh, makes it uh, remain useful in addition to the navigational light is a great thing. And I would think that other lighthouses could certainly be used in a similar way for climate research. Do you have any thoughts on that?
2: I definitely think so. I mean, they don't have to be remote from the land to be useful. There's a wide variety of monitoring that could be done with lighthouses. I think it's a good idea. I wanted to mention when we did take ownership and we had to uh, renew the agreement with Canada, to use the lighthouse and i actually have a letter from the queen yeah, on behalf of the commonwealth of canada thanking us for allowing this relationship to continue
0: cool pretty cool yeah you know uh, princess anne i think has a, a special interest in lighthouses really I know about that yeah i didn't yeah. know that yeah well they yeah,
2: have access to funding right
0: no, she's uh, she's put out uh, statements, I think, for for Lighthouse organizations along, along the way. I was wondering ab- about the, the Climate Research Station. Is there any particular information, data that's been collected that is of special interest that's been re- really important
2: along the way? Two things come to mind. One, and Fred can help me on this, about seven years ago was the last time the lake froze all the way over? Remember that, Fred? Mm-hmm. The polar vortex. And there a lot of the equipment out there, you know, uh, provided good data on uh, what was happening, lake temperatures and different things. Evaporation rates are, are crucial. I learned uh, more evaporation takes place in winter on Lake Superior typically than it does in the summer when it doesn't freeze over. There's more evaporation happening in the winter months on Superior. But when it freezes over, of course, all evaporation is shut down. And that happened about seven years ago. And that kicked off a rise in Great Lakes water levels. That was one of the factors. And then we had wet summers. And over the basically the last seven years, the, the Great Lakes, well, Superior and Huron and Michigan came up about three feet in seven years, which is unprecedented. And there a lot of communities uh, experiencing severe erosion. Thankfully, those levels are starting to go back to more of the long-term average now. But during those, those years, um, you know, they were trying to figure out what triggered all that. And they were saying that some of that data from standard was helpful in just kind of studying that phenomenon. The other thing I, I heard from the Canadians is that some of the uh, weather monitoring equipment has given them far more accurate weather forecasts uh, in Ontario and in, in portions of Ontario. So, you know, you can see where that would have some public safety, some other benefits in, in that regard.
3: So many people that are probably listening to the podcast is I don't think they have a full appreciation for the Great Lakes uh, in terms of where they are what their size is, or what what they actually mean but five great lakes like superior obviously being the the big lake the feeder lake for all of the other great lakes as well as like like here on lake michigan ontario and erie but all of that flow of water virtually all of it with minor exception the stuff that's going down chicago river on the on the uh, the bypass that was done in 1900 but all of that flow of water goes down the st lawrence river The St. Lawrence River is nothing really more than the pipe that takes the excess water flow coming down from the Great Lakes. And the predominant feed element for the Great Lakes is what comes down the St. Mary's River from Lake Superior. So the more water in Lake Superior, the more water down the St. Mary's into the lower lakes and then on down into finally reaching the ocean. So knowing and understanding Lake Superior is critical if you're going to understand everything below it because that's Mm -hmm. where it's coming from. That's the mother provider of all water. And if you were Mm to drain Lake Superior, find that big plug at the bottom and refill it is one Lake Michigan, one Lake Huron, one Lake Erie and three Lake Ontarios. That's the amount of water in it. It's just incredible. Mm -hmm. And the water levels that Carl was talking about, the Corps of Engineers has been tracking those since 1860. And they literally do it day by day, month by month, year by year. So you can see the the variations that occur not only over time, but by literally month within a year. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was high water for a bit. And now that water has gone down. And, of course, it's going to come back up again. The trick trick is how is climate change affecting that levels of water and how do they react as opposed to what they would have done a century ago? So the, the, uh, the monitoring that can be done at, at Standards Rock is really critical. Uh, they, go, I mean, they go up and down, but we also have this news media that's on a 24-hour cycle that feeds on, in some cases, non-news. Um, right. And I mean, what happens, the lake levels go down. So all the developers run up to the shore of the lake and they build stuff. And then 10 years later, the lake levels go up or 20 years later, they go up and all the stuff begins to fall in the lake. And it's woe is us. What's the world is ending? What's this terrible thing is occurring? And the reality is it's the variability of the Great Lakes is measured over time. And this is absolutely normal. You yeah. can look on it as being the tide, build your house at, at the low water level, low tide and wait till the high tide comes in. And God forbid, if you get a really high tide, your world is ended. It's self inflicted.
0: I understand the point you're making. I just, for listeners who aren't fam- that familiar with the Great Lakes, there, there's no actual tides on the Great Lakes. Right? No. But, we do
3: have, though, what's called a sage, and a sage is a movement of water that could be caused by wind or low, uh, low pressure areas. In other words, you have a low pressure on one end of the lake and a very high pressure on the other. You can get an imbalance, and that will send a wall of water going from the low to the high. In uh, 1954, I think six people got washed off a pier in Chicago and drowned. When a sage suddenly struck the city, wow. uh, so they can be they can be destructive, but again, a yeah. tide It's just uh, like the tide, a movement of water, but not a tide.
2: I sure. I uh, experienced one once, Fred. I worked on Isle Royale, and I was just building bridges, trail bridges, and I was on this stream, about ten feet wide. I was building a a footbridge across it all week, right, and I was up upstream from Lake Superior, a few hundred feet. I couldn't see the lake but there were trees in the way, but I was close to the lake, but I was on this stream. All week I'm building this little footbridge and the lake, the stream is flowing down. And I'm working one day and it's like, the stream is flowing backwards. I couldn't figure it out. And uh, I found out later that it was a seiche and, uh, you know, the park service, told the rest of the employees that it, they experienced the type of sage on the south shore. Anyway, it was it was weird to see a river go backwards. Yeah, maybe. I would say. Yeah. How do you spell sage? Yeah, I think it's S-E-I-C-H-E.
0: So, uh, Carl, um, how can people find out more about your organization, and uh, maybe separately, about the climate research station at the Lighthouse?
2: Well, they're always welcome to come visit Marquette. But the best way, of course, is uh, our website, uh, superiorwatersheds.org. And we plan to, we have some information on there about Standard Rock, but we plan to have more and we're going to link to more of the monitoring data.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: So I have one final question for each of you. First, uh, and this is for bonus points, of course. First, Fred, what do you think, and I'm sure there's probably more than one thing you can List things if you want to. Uh, What one or more things do you think are most notable about Standard Rock Lighthouse?
3: I think what's most notable, especially considering today, you know, of the hundreds of lighthouses that we have on the Great Lakes, uh, Standard Rock is the biggest. uh, She's the most remote. She's the most storm battered. Uh, I mean, you can set up a, a fetch from 110 miles coming down from the northwest which is predominant storm wind direction, and that can set up waves as high as 30 feet. And certainly she's the most legendary of all of our lights on the Great Lakes. But she also stands in tribute, not only to her magnificent history, to the magnificent men that Mander had kept her, but also to the bright future as a beacon of cutting edge climate technology. That combination of the past and the future, I think is what makes Standard Rock such a magnificent story to tell. Can I quote you on that, Fred? <laughs> Question beer at you or not? All right, deal. Yeah.
0: It does sound like something you can use in your literature, there, Carl. Uh, so, Carl, for you, what is the most exciting thing about the Superior Watershed Partnerships involvement with Stanley Rock Lighthouse?
2: Well, I think it's uh, being part of something bigger, and I, I like what Fred just said about the past and the future that's profound. I mean, it is what it's all about. But I mean, we're part of something bigger, we're working with a lot of other organizations and agencies, everything from the Maritime Museum to NOAA, Environment Canada. And I, I could list a dozen other climate organizations that, you know, have interest in what we're doing. And, uh, you know, we love living here. But, you know, things are changing, we're getting more severe storms, more extreme weather events. And, If we can be part of you know helping communities prepare for that uh, that that means a lot that's exciting
0: well uh carl lindquist uh executive director of the superior watershed partnership i want to thank you so much your your organization's doing great work in general and uh look like uh you're uh, perfect stewards for uh, standard rock lighthouse and i look forward to hearing more about it so I, i appreciate spending this time with me today and historian and author fred stonehouse always great listening to your uh recounting the the tremendous history around there and reading uh your your writing over the years and i've got to have you back there's a lot more we can talk about for sure uh related to great lakes lighthouses obviously so uh fred and carl thank you so much
2: thank Thank you you. yeah thanks jeremy i'll i'll give you that beer fred
1: To learn more about the Superior Watershed Partnership, go online to superiorwatersheds.org. And there's some more history of Standard Rock Lighthouse on the Marquette Maritime Museum's website, mqtmaritimemuseum.com.
0: It was a pleasure speaking with Fred and Carl, and I look forward to following the progress of the restoration and use of Standard Rock Lighthouse. Do you have any lighthouse visits planned, Sarah? Or are we officially now in the off-season?
1: I wouldn't say there's officially an off season for lighthouses, um, but my visits will probably slow down as soon as the cold and the snow come. But I am hoping to make it down to possibly Rhode Island or Connecticut sometime this winter to check out the lighthouses there.
0: Our thanks to the United States Lighthouse Society and all its chapters and affiliates. Go to uslhs.org to learn more about all the things the society offers.
1: The poet Stanley Horowitz once wrote, quote, Winter is an etching, spring a watercolor, summer an oil painting, and autumn a mosaic of them all, unquote.
0: Next week's episode will feature an interview with Bonnie Stacy, chief curator of the Martha's Vineyard Museum in Massachusetts. We'll be talking about the incredible Fresnel lens exhibit in the museum and other lighthouse-related topics. As always, thanks for listening and
1: keep a good light.